A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Wednesday morning, the 20th of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The Dáil will debate a motion of no confidence in the Minister for Health today. Simon Harris is expected to survive the Sinn Féin motion, which will be supported by Labour, the Greens and a number of independents, including the chair of the Rockers Health Committee, Michael Harty. Fianna Fáil will abstain from voting on the motion, saying a vote of no confidence would trigger a general election and that weeks out from Brexit, this would amount to national sabotage. The minority government will rely on support from Michael Lowry and Noel Grealish and hope for the support of Dennis Nocton to keep Harris in his post, but the vote will be tight and the debate will not bode well for Harris, Fine Gael and the government, nor will it play out well for Fianna Fáil for that matter. Let's talk about this with Sean Defoe, our political correspondent who's on the line. Good morning, Sean. Uh, is it certain that Harris will survive tonight's vote? Morning, Michael. Yeah, pretty much guaranteed. Yeah, he has the numbers there. You've talked about them in your introduction. So, barring some shock or some turn of heart by maybe a rebel Fianna Fáil TD, which seems unlikely, yeah, he should survive. All right. Uh, but it will uh, be a bad day for government. Undoubtedly, the overrun and the costs of uh, the National Children's Hospital will be the focus of uh, this debate. But there's uh, many problems in the health service, the Angola of government departments. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And I think you mentioned that it will be a tight vote in the end. It probably will be a tight vote. I mean, there was a line doing the rounds yesterday that really the government is only one bad hangover and someone not showing up away from actually losing this because of the state of the health service. I would imagine there's going to be quite a few Fianna Fáil TDs who just won't be in the chamber tonight because their party plans to abstain and they don't want to have anything to do with that or anything to do with voting on it. So it's going to be interesting in that case. But this, yeah, the National Children's Hospital, you could say, is the straw that broke the camel's back and called for this. Uh, certainly Sinn Féin, that's what they've been saying, that they don't have confidence in the housing minister, or in the health minister, rather. They've also put a motion in the housing minister before, as we know. Mm. But that this is really what forced it. Now, a cynic would say, and certainly what Fine Gael and some of Fianna Fáil have said, is this just Sinn Féin trying to win political points, trying to embarrass Fianna Fáil into having to support a minister who many in the public have serious questions over after the last couple of months 
and putting the government on the back foot. So there's two ways of viewing it, I suppose. All right, and the publication of uh, the minutes yesterday from uh, the Joint Construction and Finance Subcommittee of uh, the National Paediatric Hospital Development Board uh, put this in an even worse light. Uh, the idea that uh, they were to sign up to a confidential confidentiality agreement and uh, to keep uh, the information within the group so that no, no one knew outside of the people that needed to know. That's it, and you could question then that are they the only people who need to know? Because we've seen that this decision didn't get to the politicians, certainly in time for the last budget to actually, you know, we could say it could definitely have an impact there in terms of the fact that they're now scrambling for €100 million this year to meet the capital spend overrun on the hospital alone. Mm. So those minutes were quite interesting in, in their content. It shows that as far back as May 2018, they were warning of a 55 million euro overrun and noted in that was that this is likely to seriously underrepresent what the final overrun could be. And then as it went into further meetings in August, the final figures or the current figures certainly became apparent quite quickly in only a space of a couple of weeks. And huge questions were raised by people on the board. Some were wondering, can we afford this at all? We need to get final figures to see if the state can actually afford to build this hospital. And then, as you mentioned, those non- mm. uh, non-disclosure agreements. Now, uh, you know, a lot of people who might be building, say, in the private sector or are familiar with private sector contra- contracts. But no, you know, non-disclosure agreements, not always a- an odd thing to a big procurement process. And certainly yesterday, Pascal Donahue, I asked him about it, and he said that while in the main non-disclosure agreements are not common in public tenders, and when it comes to the really big ones, the likes of the, the National Children's Hospital, the likes of perhaps a big motorway project, they may well be used if the board building that decides it. So it it sounds as though this isn't the first time that has happened. Certainly, it looks as though it may be the most serious time, given the uh, amount of overruns. But equally, uh, his, um, Pascal Donner, his predecessor in that post, Brenton Howland, said he'd never heard the practice, never heard of it at all, and that it was utterly bizarre to him to see non-disclosure agreements being used in a public contract. But a, a lot of people would say they'd like to have known. I, I mean, when you were getting out of bed uh, this morning to earn a crust, Sean, uh, and pay your mortgage and uh, the taxes that will go on this, I'm sure uh, you would have felt that uh, you'd want to know why you're getting out of bed and where your money is going to end up being spent and that you didn't want anybody covering that up on you. Uh, a lot of people would feel that way. A lot of politicians would feel that way. And certainly Fianna Fáil would feel that way. Uh, they would certainly feel that they needed to know. They needed to know to uh, agree on the budget for this year. And they needed to know so that they could have uh, gone into extending the confidence and supply agreement with Fine Gael in full knowledge of what was going on. Well, when I was getting out of bed this morning, Michael, I'll be honest, I was checking my Euro Millions ticket, hoping I'd have tens of millions yeah. of euros to throw away on something, as many other people around the country, I'm absolutely. sure were. But, mm. uh, but you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, this, Simon Harris knew in August of potentially 400 million euro of overruns. Now, to be fair to him, that was not finalised, and the documents and the different things from the board show that they needed to get a final figure. And there's a certain amount of merit for him saying, mm. we wanted a final figure before I brought that to government. Fair enough. But you would think... Even, you know, in any business, if I was making a, a show or a documentary for LMFM and I said, you know, it's going to be this budget and a month later mm. I learned, well, actually, it's going to be, you know, more than double the budget and did not tell that. I, I doubt the reception would be too, you know, too welcoming now. And I'd say a lot of people in their own jobs would recognize that. So it's kind of unbelievable to me, certainly, that Simon Harris didn't go and just even have a word with Pascal Donahue or with the teacher mm. to say, look, 
something's coming down the line here. I don't have the final figures, but it's going to be quite a lot of money. We might want to have a think about this in the budget. Mm. Or we might want to, uh, you know, have this information when we're negotiating with Fianna Fáil on the next capital budget. Now, those negotiations on confidence supply, it doesn't seem as though Fianna Fáil asked for anything significant anyway mm. that would have been affected. But it still is information you would have liked to know were you entering into support of government for the next year. But in terms of credibility, it would seem to be that Fine Gael have a far better defence than Fianna Fáil has in that they will say, oh no, that's not the way we do things and we have really very good, important reasons for not doing it that way. Whilst on the other hand, Fianna Fáil will be saying, oh, they should have done it that way, uh, but we're going to uh, support the minister by abstaining in the vote. Yeah, Fianna Fáil are in a really tricky position on this because they they want Harris gone. Absolutely no doubt about that. They want Simon Harris gone. In fact, they want this government gone. I there's a lot of them who are hugely frustrated. And I don't think they'd mind too much about taking to the doors at this stage. But of course, the B word hovers over us all. Brexit, 37 mm. days away now. And it would be, they are right, it would be irresponsible and reckless to collapse the government at the moment. Now, the counter-argument to that, and this is something that Sinn Féin and Labour have been saying, you don't need to collapse the government to get rid of a minister. It was mm. done with Frances Fitzgerald. She resigned and the government kept on. Simon Harris could resign or um, the teacher could tap him on the shoulder as he did with Dennis Nocton and say, look, pal, you know, you need to go or you're going to be pushed. But the Fine Gael are not going to do that because they know they're not under enough pressure and they know they can just hover the threat of, well, if you do that, we'll collapse the government and then whose fault is it really? I think if push came to shove and Fianna Fáil actually called for Simon Harris to resign, he would have to step down because I just don't see the overadker collapsing the government at the moment either. And why but, is it that they're uh, not I, doing that? I mean, Thomas Byrne was telling us on the programme yesterday that they're feeling the greatest heat from Fianna Fáil supporters. And there are dashes this weekend as well. Let's not forget that. I think that's going to be particularly interesting to see what the grassroots level have to say because loads of them are not happy with this deal. But they've blinked, you know, they made the commitment to extend confidence and supply. And this was a stare off over whether or not there would be uh, the housing or the health minister would be gotten rid of. And, and they blinked first. They said, look, you, you could also make the comment, the other argument, mm. by the way, that Michal Martin is just standing by his morals and he said he's a man of his word. He said he's not going to collapse the government for a year, so he won't collapse the government for a year. But you do also have to wonder how far does that stretch? How many calamities can a government get away with, with the harbour, with Brexit yeah. hovering over and uh, nothing actually be done by the opposition? So it is a very, very tricky position for me, for Michal Martin. Is there a question over Michal Martin's leadership uh, or the prospect of a question uh, about his leadership because of this? Because uh, we've heard about uh, the spat that took place at the parliamentary party meeting between John McGuinness and Barry Cowan. Uh, we're hearing uh, that Fianna Fall grassroots are up in arms about this particular stance that the party has taken and abstaining on a vote of confidence in a minister they say is incompetent Uh, but uh, as this party goes forward uh, members will be saying to themselves why is it that the government is shooting itself in the foot and it's the opposition that is wounded I think Michal Martin's position is certainly safe for the short term because his senior leadership team are on the same page as him and they agree that this is the unfortunate but right course of action to go with at the moment. The longer term question is a lot less clear. I suppose some of them are hoping that they're having to grin and bear through this and they're having to not bring down the government and watch Fine Gael make these mistakes. But they're also hoping that the public is watching that and that when push comes to shove at the next election, Michal Martin can get up and say... I did the responsible thing. I made sure this country was looked after through Brexit. Look at everything Fine Gael did in the meantime and messed everything up. Vote for me and that they'll be able to get enough of a mandate to get in and govern themselves or at least be the opposite way around in the minority government where they're in power and Fine Gael are not. 
But it's a risky strategy, and it's one that is uh, annoying a lot of the grassroots, annoying a lot of TDs. And if it doesn't work at the next election, or even if there's a, a massive disaster for Fianna Fáil, say in the local Europeans, then questions will have to be asked, I think. And will it give Sinn Féin the boost you'd expect it might? I don't think so. Uh, I think Sinn Féin are in a really strange position. I mean, this is the fifth, I think, by my count, motion of no confidence that they have brought since Leo Varadkar became Taoiseach in various people. So there was obviously Francis Fitzgerald, Owen Murphy, Simon Harris, and then two from outside the door, Noreen O'Sullivan, and Tony O'Brien, the former Garda Commissioner and head of the HSC. And at the moment, they're in a bit of a strange position. They're not getting any sort of bump, bump in the polls. And Sinn Féin kind of seems to be just flinging around, trying to, to land a punch on anybody. It, it hasn't hugely worked. There's going to be a huge amount of criticism for them in the Dáil tonight. I understand that the Taoiseach and the Tánaiste and several ministers are going to speak, and all of their ire will be directed towards Sinn Féin, as will most of Fianna Fáil's, I imagine, because not just Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael could really aim proper barbs at each other. We saw a right cap fight emerge when there was the motion of no confidence in Owen Murphy. I'm just not 100% convinced because they are not offering a huge amount of alternative solutions to what is actually going on, whereas long-term, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael can both argue, well, look, we're now looking at how we bring down the cost of the hospital. We're not calling for a head because what would a head achieve, really? If you're talking about Simon Harris going, someone else just has to come in and fix the problem. Maybe he should be left there to fix it himself. Okay, sounds like everybody will be on the offensive, uh, so it should be quite an intense debate. Uh, We'll be watching it closely, of course, and thank you indeed for joining us. Beforehand, our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the government agreed emergency legislation, uh, the omnibus legislation uh, required by the 31st of March to prepare the country for a no-deal Brexit should that transpire to be the case. We'll talk about that with uh, the Minister for European Affairs, Helen McEntee, who's on the line in a moment. Uh, But before we talk about Brexit, Minister, perhaps uh, we could talk about a more pressing local issue uh, and indeed one that could be in impacted by Brexit for that matter. The North-South Interconnector with uh, the Supreme Court yesterday dismissing a challenge uh, to uh, the Planning Board's uh, decision to grant permission to Airgrid uh, for this project. Uh, Effectively, this uh, exhausts all legal avenues that may have uh, thwarted uh, the project. Good morning, Michael. Um, Well, I mean, you know, I think there are Probably many people who are disappointed with the ruling yesterday, um, but this does not to me mean the end of the planning process. And I think that we still have some way to go, not just uh, in terms of the possible avenues after the Supreme Court, because obviously there are further legal avenues if, if people wish to go down that route. But also the fact that the planning process in the north is still not yet complete. Uh, we had a ruling, um, I think, in the first week of February, so not too long ago, which essentially highlighted and, and, and overturned a decision that was made by uh, officials and civil servants within the Department of Infrastructure in the North. Uh, and this was on the basis that there was no minister, or there was no functioning executive, as we haven't had one for over two years now in the North. So this is an ongoing process. Um, and as I've said, the planning process, as far as I'm concerned, has still not been complete. We have in the South as well uh, a report which was commissioned last year by our then Minister for um, the Environment or Climate Action and Communications, Dennis Nocton, um, and, it, and, and we asked it to look at two specific issues. Firstly, the technical feasibility, because this is an issue that we have always, I suppose, debated, and, and the reason why myself and my colleagues and many others across the board have been debating and, and uh, prolonging this issue because of the fact that we feel there should be technical 
uh, abilities out there to deal with this and to put it underground. The second part of it was looking at the, the international best practice, but also uh, looking at uh, ownership of property in London, and that has yet to be debated in the committee, um, and that's obviously something that we would be seeking and looking to happen before anything at any stage moves forward. So I think there's still some way to go. This project, is, as you know, uh, right, uh, rightly, and many others know, has been ongoing since 2007, and, and I think we're absolutely determined that it needs to be done right, and that people's concerns are taken on board. Okay. Um, what's the government's position on it? Well, I, I mean, the government's position is that this is an important infrastructural project um, and we're not hiding that and that has mm. always been the case before this government, the government before that and Fianna Fáil in government before to initially mm. introduce this. Um, it is part of national infrastructure and it's not just about energy security on mm. this island, it's everybody, about providing that, an yeah. environment for, exactly, and no one political party mm. has disagreed with the need for in terms of security on the entire mm. island but also in terms but of providing an environment But what's the position on our grid's approach to delivering the project? Well, the thing here is, and and we've always said that, is it's the government's prerogative to set out the the programmes, whether it's roads, whether it's infrastructure like this. Mm. However, how it's provided and how it's uh, produced, whether it's the the material that's used for the roads, whether it's the infrastructure or the technology, that's where we leave the experts, or that's where we ask the experts to provide. So uh, you trust in Airgrid's expertise? Well, what we have always said and what we have always questioned is could this project be put underground? And that has been from day one when this was first introduced, the project was no, not, 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 you, not, not you personally. Not, not you personally, Minister. The government trusts in Airgrid's expertise. Well, we have to trust in the expertise of the bodies and the main yes, organisations in this case, that's that are equipped with putting forward these projects and putting yes. the, the technology in place. But it is also my job as a politician and that is my colleague's job mm. to question where we feel there might be possible alternatives. Sure, We've but always it, said is it right, Minister, to say that the government's technology. position is to trust in Airgrid's expertise? The government's position is to allow the governing bodies, and in this case Airgrid, right. to put forward what they think would be the best, but as public well, representatives... Yeah, they're, they're already spending millions on this. They're already spending millions on this. I, I think Dennis Nocton uh, commissioned uh, or put out for tender the pylons uh, before he left office. Uh, so this is already something uh, that is underway. Uh, it's completed the planning process and all of the legal challenges in this state. Airgrid says it'll get the planning permission in the north probably before August uh, when an order runs out there which uh, allows a civil servant to give planning permission. Uh, and uh, it's full steam ahead. Well, no, I don't believe that's the case. And again, if you go back to the fact that this project was to be completed in 2015, and I, and I have to be sensible here mm. in saying that this is an important project in terms of our all-island electricity market. Mm. So we do want to see this progress. However, what we need to make sure is that it's done in the best possible way. The planning uh, in terms of mm, on but, this but, island, yes, you're but, right. But, but you're, you're a representative of a forward. government uh, which trusts in the expertise of Airgrid and they believe this is the best possible way. You've said as much already, Minister, have you not? But I think it's my duty to continue to ask the questions and to raise the concerns that I have. That but Airgrid has answered them. There could possibly be further technology. As time goes on, we have seen in other countries where technology has been used, the particular uh, route and the particular reasons for this project, uh, Airgrid have consistently said the technology in terms of underground is not the appropriate one. However, as time goes on, 
I do firmly believe, and I think many people believe, mm. that that technology will be developed, that it will become cheaper, and that we will be able to put this project underground and that we won't have okay. that impact on people's lives. Do you believe that? And that is why I think that this process is not over. As you said, the process here in terms of legal mm. terms, you've gone to the Supreme Court. There are alternative avenues. And do you believe a, a European challenge is possible? I, I believe it's possible if, if that's the way that, I suppose, that the... the, the landowners want to take it absolutely. Would you lend your that name would you lend your name minister yeah. to a European challenge? Well no I think as a government minister that's not something that's within my power but Why? absolutely this is Why? Because this is a government project what I am trying so to So that, that you, you, you is, if you were to lend your name to it does that mean that if you were to lend your name to it you'd be taking a legal challenge against your own government? The landowners and people that I have engaged with and that I work with is that what it means, have minister? my absolute support in trying to identify the best okay, way so forward. You, w- in terms of Would you call on them to take it? You're obviously not going to legally challenge yourself, in other words, but would you call on the landowners to legally challenge yourself and the government you represent? No, I'm not going to call on anybody. It's absolutely up to individual landowners and to the community to take the steps that they feel relevant. It is my job as a government minister, to question Mm. and to make sure that what we are doing is being done in the best possible way. And I have always said, I'm six years now at TD, I have always said that I want the best outcome for the people that I represent. Yes, this is a a government project. It was a government project before we came into power. Mm. This is about securing electricity and cheaper prices and creating environments for business. But we need to make sure that we do it in the best way possible. And my objective here is to question and to continue to question until... I, I think we are satisfied and that we, as I said, I, I do believe that technology will evolve and will develop in years to come. And I think that should be our overall objective. Okay, Minister, can I ask you about Brexit uh, in relation to this? Because it has EU priority status uh, and if planning permission isn't granted before the 29th of March and the United Kingdom leaves the European Union on the 29th of March, what might it mean for this project? Well, this is what we're talking about when you mentioned at the beginning in terms of legislation, in terms of the all-island electricity market. But what we don't know, I suppose, is if there is um, a crash-out Brexit, if we have a no-deal scenario, what does that mean in terms of overall investment in infrastructure, not just in projects like this, um, but for the North and for the UK? Because obviously they would be moving themselves away from um, funding resources within the European Union if there is a no-deal scenario. So what we are trying to make sure is that the areas of cooperation which currently exist separate to, to what we've just discussed, mm. that they can be allowed to continue. So say, for example, the, the, the Omnibus Bill, which will be uh, published fully and, well, mostly fully by the end of this week, um, will talk about how trains can continue to move north and south, how we can continue to, to allow the infrastructure that currently exists that crosses those boundaries or invisible boundaries, should I say, and um, that they continue as and the status quo continues. So that is what this legislation is about, of course. What we know is that there are certain elements that we, we just can't predict for, uh, whether that's in the north, south, east, west, or from Ireland and the rest of the European Union. There are certain parts and, and certain things that we cannot uh, predict. So we are trying in as much as we can to be as prepared as possible. This is the largest type of legislation that has ever come before the House 
um, and it will be debated over the next number of weeks and, and uh, I suppose it's important to thank all of our colleagues, not just um, our ministers and the department officials who've worked on this, but members from across the political spectrum because there is a broad consensus and support which unfortunately we're not seeing in the UK to to work together, to come together and to make sure that this legislation is passed, that people are impacted as little as possible. But, you know, as I've said, there are uncertainties there and and certainly um, we can plan in as much as we can, but, but we can't predict exactly what the outcome would be. What we can do and what we're trying to do is work towards an agreement. We have spent two years on that basis. Um, It was signed off by the Prime Minister and her Cabinet. Uh, We obviously don't have an overall agreement from the House of Commons, but really the ball is very much in the course of the House of Commons and the UK government at this stage. They have talked about alternative arrangements, they've talked about different proposals. We know the Prime Minister is in Brussels Mm. again today, um, but really we have seen absolutely nothing in terms of further proposals or alternative arrangements since that amendment was passed probably about three weeks ago now at this stage. So, uh, you know, with 37 days left to go to Brexit, we we are running out of time and really we need to see uh, further proposals and we need to see further engagement from the UK on this. But if the UK leaves before planning permission is granted in the UK, uh, in Northern Ireland, for the North-South interconnector, what will it mean going forward in terms of realising this project? Because it has European priority status between two European states. And after Brexit, obviously, you'd be talking about one European state, the Republic of Ireland, and uh, then Northern Ireland, which will be in the United Kingdom outside of the European Union. Well, the simple answer to that is we don't know. And I I know I spoke about this before many months ago, probably over a year ago, uh, in that we just don't know what the overall status of the UK would be when they leave the European Union in terms of what projects will they be involved in, what uh, connections will they have with the European Union and thus projects like this. Um, The Prime Minister has always said they're leaving CAP, they're leaving the Common Fisheries Policy, they're leaving certain projects. But Mm. even with a deal, she has said that they would like to stay in the likes of Horizon 2020, the Erasmus programmes, working on education and various other projects. So there is obviously um, an uncertainty given the fact that a no deal would take all of this off the table, uh, irrespective of best intentions or what it is that the UK wanted to be a part of. Uh, And obviously we would have to establish after that scenario where we go to next. But I mean, again, this comes down to the fact that a deal is so necessary Mm. that we need to be sure what it is that the UK wants, not just uh, for Northern Ireland, but itself as well, because obviously our relationship north-south is extremely important, but also our relationship east-west is something that we want to protect and uh, the people that we have living in the UK and vice versa, we want to protect those relationships as well. And this legislation, when it's uh, published uh, on Friday, uh, will cover the likes of everyday living for people, uh, this green card system, for example, for drivers uh, to prove that you have insurance and that type of thing. Well, the the green card is something that the insurance companies themselves have been presenting or, or I suppose, proposing. And this was based on a pre-European environment that they would have used before so many years ago. And essentially, I think what some companies have said is if we have no deal by the 1st of March or moving into the first week of March, then they would be asking their um, clients or their customers to request these because obviously there would be a period of time. And it essentially, I mean, it, it is... It is far from ideal, but essentially you would have this card in in the car window in the front so that if you are in the north or if you are indeed having to ferry in in the rest Mm. of the UK, um, then those policies would apply. And it's it's those reciprocal arrangements as well, which we have to work with the Commission on uh, to make sure that that if an Irish person in the UK and vice versa... 
Well, that, that yeah. people know that your car is insured, it won't affect your insurance, it won't affect yeah. your claims, it won't affect how much you pay, but it is an additional piece of paperwork. And this is, I suppose, why we keep saying to people, even mm. uh, in the best case scenario, there will be some form of change. And obviously in a no deal, that will increase and, and it just means more work for people. It means more administration mm. uh, and it means much more uh, hassle in terms of even your day to day, your car going uh, along its travels as it normally would without having to have this. So this is why, again, a deal is so important. Mm. And I, I really I cannot stress, you know, I, I, I've, yeah. I was in Brussels yesterday. Uh, I spoke to my European colleagues. Uh, I spoke to, to, to some of my British counterparts and, and you know, an ideal scenario is, is, is the worst possible mm. place we could find ourselves in uh, in a month's time and really we, we don't want to be there. How will the train work, Minister? Uh, I mean, uh, let's say on the 1st of April, uh, which is an unfortunate date to pick, I suppose, but let's say on the 1st of April I was to fly from Romania, that a Romanian was to fly into Dublin uh, and go down to Connolly Station and get on the Enterprise. Uh, will they be able to travel up as far as uh, uh, Newry or Belfast? Well, I, I don't have the exact legislation in front of me in terms of how that technically would work, but what we're trying to ensure uh, through the legislation, and as I said, it would be a little bit clearer now in the next mm. week or so because it's still being worked on. What we're trying to ensure is that that train would continue to travel and continue to function in the same way that people uh, who are possibly living in Donegal but cross the border to access health care, that they would mm. continue to be able to do that. So this legislation looks at all of those scenarios, the detail maybe in, in the next week or two, I might be able to flesh out with you mm. a little bit more. But, um, you know, and sometimes it's as simple as changing and amending simple legislation. So uh, one part of it, which uh, I do know, which I suppose is, is a smaller amendment, is where students are living um, in the UK and where they're in receipt of the or the, the, the SUSE grant, which is, of course, the, the grant given to students who are studying for third-level education. Uh, at the moment, it's awarded to students studying in Ireland or in European countries. So obviously, if the UK left, they would be a third country. And it's about adding that uh, piece, which says, and the UK to allow that to continue without mm. there being any change, without there being any uh, fluctuation in the funding that they're getting. So, you know, some of the legislation is as simple as amending or adding on words, whereas others is obviously more complex and, and more detailed. But I think we'll, we'll see that unfold um, in the mm. coming weeks and, and hopefully we will be able to, to pass it through the houses. As I said, we do have the support of all okay. of the political parties, which is extremely important. Just, just, just quickly to conclude, uh, as you said, Mrs May is in Brussels uh, today. She's to meet uh, with Jean-Claude Juncker uh, the Commission has more or less said uh, you're wasting your time if you're asking us to reopen the negotiations. The expectation, I think, to some degree has been that there be an extension of some sort. The Taoiseach told to the Dáil yesterday that Mrs May told him she won't be seeking an extension. So if all of that is right, what next? Well, I, I, I suppose I, I can't comment on what Mrs May said other than at the moment they haven't asked for an extension so obviously if that were to change then that would have to be looked at and we have always said we'd look at it favourably if you extend it and as I'm sure you saw yesterday the complications that follow right. in terms of the European elections you know, do the UK put themselves forward? Probably not. Where does that leave us then if we have people elected? To um, a limbo, so obviously, yeah. Well, yeah. the longer this goes on, the more complex, if that can actually be possible, but the more complex this becomes and the more difficult it is to resolve those other issues. So we obviously want this to be resolved sooner rather than later. The withdrawal agreement and the backstop, the Irish protocol, is not for reopening. And, and again, as I've said, speaking to European colleagues yeah. yesterday, solidarity is absolutely rock solid in, in those regards and, and the idea that we would return to it. But there are 
other possibilities and other options in terms of the future relationship, in terms of what that political declaration could look like um, in comparison to what we agreed last November. And I really think that that's where we should be looking at. And hopefully that's the kind of conversations the Prime Minister will be having today when she returns to Brussels. Okay, Minister, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. Uh, We should mention to people who are interested in the North-South Interconnector that we'll be speaking to Airgrid later in the programme. But our our thanks for the moment uh, to Fine Gael TD in me, the East Helen McEntee, who's uh, the Minister for European Affairs. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you've been hearing, the Euro Millions jackpot winning ticket was bought in Ireland. Uh, the winner or winners are entitled to 175 million euro as a result. Robert McGee, spokesperson with uh, the National Lottery, is on the line. Good morning to you, Robert, and thanks for joining us. Uh, I gather you haven't heard morning, from the winners morning. as yet, or have you? No, not so, so far. It's, uh, well, look, we, we are only open about just over an hour. So, so far, it's all quiet in the Western Front from, from, from that perspective. But look, it's very early days and the winner does have 90 days from the date of the draw. So from yesterday's date to contact us. But look, it's ridiculously early in the process yeah. here and we are confident that we will hear from the winner sooner or later. OK, I'm sure you don't want to uh, comment on speculation here that it was a family syndicate who bought the ticket in the Knoll with connections in Dulik and Bellewstown. Look, again, that's just idle speculation at the moment and we can't comment on any sort of speculation until someone has made contact with ourselves. Now, I did see a certain TD sending out a tweet there in the last couple of minutes. Uh, I think it was your, your researcher had made me aware of it. But look, at the moment, we can only deal with what's in front of us and nobody as of two minutes ago has made contact with us just yet. All right. Uh, what are the odds of somebody in Ireland winning a jackpot of this size? 175 million euro is an incredible amount of money. Even if it was a, a syndicate of 10 people, each of them would be entitled to over 17 million euro each. Yeah, look, it would be an absolutely cracking prize to win. Even with a syndicate of 10, 20 people, it's still mm. massive amounts of money. And look, if it's one person alone, this amount of money it's, it's, it's stratospherical like it's it enabled you to do literally anything with your life it will set up your family for generations and generations to come so look we're talking about legacy amounts of money here but look it's, it's incredible news and look um, best of luck to whoever the winner or winners are at the moment Alright there's about 740 million people in Europe I think so I suppose <laughs> at a minimum the odds are 740 to 1 but not everybody in Europe will be playing Euro millions exactly. but lots uh will and lots will buy multiple tickets and indeed uh, then you have the odds of getting all of the numbers so what are the odds do you have stats on that what the odds are on getting the 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 winning numbers uh, and that you would have the only ticket with the winning numbers well look exact uh, exact odds i do not have but look there is nine countries so ireland and eight other countries are the euro millions partners so i do know that the uh, in terms of population ireland's population makes up about 2.2% of that. So, look, us Irish are really lucky at the moment with Euro Millions. Like we, this is our 14th Euro Millions win since 2004 when the game was first was first launched. So, look, we are punching above our weight in terms of wins. And, look, yeah, it's 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 it's, 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 it's incredible odds to win it. Mm. But, look, for it, it, it's really great for us to, to have an, an Irish winner as well, and especially of such a such a record-breaking um, a jackpot, like 175 million, completely dwarfs mm. what Dolores McNamara won back in 2005. She got 115 so we were all aghast at the time have all 14 winners gone public as Dolores did or is it necessary whoever has won this uh, I'm sure will be wondering do they need to go public well, you don't. Well, that's the main thing. We, the, you, the winner, as in the winner of this lucky ticket holder, gets 
complete control over what they do and look we are here to advise them on whatever they need but look that decision um, on whether they go public or not completely lies with them but ourselves for any prize winner it's about 2-3% of winners do go public and to date in our Euro Millions well this is number 14 but of our lucky 13 so far there has been 3 who have gone public one was Dolores and two of the others were a syndicate you might remember the Dublin mm. bus syndicate of mm. the summer of 2016 and then just last June we had a syndicate of 32 uh, in, in Stakelum's hardware store down in Tipperary who went public again because look most of the big um, big wins we have that people do, do go public it is because it's a syndicate and look when you've got 10, 20 people in the same syndicate it's hard to keep that under wraps so look Dave that's, if, 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 the, if the news gets out quick enough um, with that but then look they, they, they would decide just to come up here have a nice day out to do your do the publicity and look then uh, get, get it over and done with like taking a sticky a sticky, a sticky band of bandage off and uh, getting it completely over and done with in one afternoon if somebody comes forward this morning how long will it be before they get the 175 million it will be about a week now it does take time for the eight euro million partners to get the money through to uh, to, 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 to the Irish account so look it'll be about a week before they'll be able to hold that cheque in their hands right that's the eight countries involved uh, yeah, well, eight yeah. including Ireland. All oh, right. Okay, Not well, I, I, I'm sure somebody has a, a big smile on their face at, at the moment. Uh, and if the exactly. speculation that we're hearing is... <laughs> just check those tickets and look if it is you who's matched them five numbers and the two lucky stars keep that piece of paper very very safe it's a very valuable piece of paper and look contact ourselves mm. in Dublin on 018364444 and we can talk you through and walk you through every step along the way and look you can go as fast and as slow as you want Alright thank you Robert McGee spokesperson for the National Lottery Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to all our listeners. Jimmy emailed us in yesterday uh, following your interview with Thomas Byrne and he says that Fianna Fáil don't want an election because of Brexit, or so they say. Now, if Minister Simon Harris loses the vote of confidence, all the government has to do is say to the minister, you are not more important than Brexit, so you will just have to resign. Of course, I'm pretty sure that Simon will understand. The Fianna Fáilers have will have no excuse to vote out the minister. Mind you, I don't believe they like logical thinking. I enjoyed the show. Thank you, Jimmy. All right. Thanks uh, for the call, Jimmy. We had uh, another listener in touch saying uh, he woke up this morning, Joe, and he was listening to the show and he was saying, when you wake up in the morning, Michael, you do like to know where your money is being spent. And he feels that the government has been a big letdown in relation to the National Children's Hospital. He feels that they're not acting in the national interest and believes that the site is totally wrong. He says, I've been in hospital there, unfortunately, and I just don't understand why that site was picked and how anyone can get away with it. The hospital is wrong and the location is wrong. Mm. Margaret says the Fianna Fáil are the ones who will suffer today by standing by Fine Gael yet again. Fair enough the party has confidence in Simon Harris. That's acceptable if they do. But if they don't, 
then they should vote accordingly. Using Brexit and not being the time for a general election is a cop-out, in my opinion, says Margaret. All right, well, that's uh, why Fianna Fáil says it's abstaining in tonight's vote, uh, but undoubtedly it will be a bad day for the party. Jim from Eastmead phoned in and he says that if Simon Harris was working for a private company, he'd have been given the heave-ho by now. He says, granted, I do think that Simon has done some good in the job that he's in and is trying his best, but you cannot overlook this situation. He must accept the responsibility that this has happened under his watch. How will Fianna Fáil be able to go to the doors again? John wants to know in the next election and say that they won't prop up Fine Gael again. Either you are in opposition or you're not. You can't have it both ways. Mm. Marion thinks that this vote is a waste of time and is wondering why Sinn Féin is even, even bothering when they know it's a lost cause. All they want to do is try and get themselves some headlines, says Marion. All right, well, they will get headlines. They're getting headlines this morning. They'll get headlines lines uh, throughout the day and indeed I'm sure it'll dominate uh, much of uh, the news agenda tomorrow because it's bound to be a very heated uh, debate uh, and Sinn Féin would say that that's accountability at work and that as an opposition party it's their job to hold the minister to account and if they feel that uh, there has been wrongdoing or incompetence well then the onus is on them to do that. Fianna Fáil on the other hand going to the caller before that uh, Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I would say that uh, that is uh, to hold uh, the country uh, to ransom, uh, that it's uh, sabotage uh, yeah. at this time because of Brexit and that they're not going to do that. They're going to hold the national interest uh, as a priority uh, and uh, make sure that the government stays in place. Simon Harris uh, then going back to the first of those three callers would say that of course it's his responsibility and he is taking responsibility for it but we'll be hearing much more about that later in the programme. Wednesday morning of course meaning uh, that uh, the local newspapers are in shops and because of some of the other issues and the very pressing issues and busy programme that we had this morning, we haven't come to the papers as yet. So a little bit later than usual, perhaps you tell us what's on the front pages, Marie. Yes, Michael. First to the Drogheda Independent and the death of a popular local Garda is the lead story in the Drogheda Independent as the paper features tributes to the late RD Sergeant Jim McComiskey. 
who sadly passed away suddenly at the age of 50 during a golfing outing last week. Jim, who served a drought of 17 years before moving to RD two years ago, was remembered in the article by Superintendent Andrew Waters as having a great ability to engage with people and had made a huge contribution to policing, been involved in every major and significant investigation in County Loud. So sympathy to his family today, Michael. Indeed, uh, that makes for the lead story, front page story of uh, the Drogheda Independent. Uh, a different story on the front page of uh, the leader. It's a story about why there isn't a story. It is, yes, yeah, that's right. You've hit, you've hit the, the nail on the head there, Michael. It's disappointment, really, that Drogheda didn't get any funding towards transforming historical sites in the town. Mayor Frank Godfrey, while welcoming the five million that was allocated in recent days to upgrade the Bruna Bonia Interpretive Centre and the installation of a state-of-the-art exhibition at Nouth, he says Drogheda has been left scrambling for money and is quoted even one million of funding would have made a huge difference to Drogheda that has been starved of funding by the government and the OPW. We need money to do up the old town walls and for St. Lawrence's Gate and the old Abbey. Okay, we'll go to Dundalk, uh, the Democrat uh, talking about money but in a, a very different way on its front page. Yes, that's the, the, the increase of almost 1.7 million in the collection of commercial rates in Louth last year, which is described in the story in the Dundalk Democrat by Martin McElligot of Dundalk Bids as certainly good news for Dundalk and absolutely a sign that the local economy is on the up. Meanwhile, Michael, as the Brexit date looms even closer, there's a very interesting interview on page six with Paul O'Sullivan of Carlingford Ferry, who spoke about the uncertainty, the worry and the challenges facing business people, especially if the worst happens and there is a hard border. Okay, it's uh, rubbish uh, that dominates uh, the front of the leader. Yes, and it's about an unsung hero, really. This one man's fight against litter is highlighted in this story in the Dundalk Leader. Uh, The man who wishes to remain anonymous apparently is is always on the go, Michael. He keeps the coastline of North Loud free from litter and plastics and his efforts have been praised in the article by Councillor Anton Waters who says that he has been collecting rubbish along the coast for many years and is a credit to the local community. Councillor Waters told the paper that he does it off his own bat and never seeks credit or accolades. So remains anonymous and just does it like many, I suppose, good Mm. citizens in the area. All right. Well, uh, the Argus, uh, again, has a, a different story, which it feels is uh, the most, most important story this week. And it leads uh, with Emma Coffey's bylaws uh, to stamp out protests at abortion service providers. That's right. That's the front page story in the Argus. And inside, there's a lovely pay story that caught my eye on page six. And it definitely puts you in good form. It's about, people may remember this story last year, Alicia and Paddy McKevitt. They celebrate Valentine's Day in their home in Omid a year after it was destroyed by by fire and it was made possible Michael thanks to the generosity and support of their neighbours and wider community who rallied around the couple to help them get their house rebuilt again. Alright well the Supreme Court uh, quashed uh, the appeal against Zambor Planola's decision to grant permission uh, for the North-South interconnector yesterday. That's not the end of the story according to Minister Helen McEntee earlier on the programme. What's the story in the Chronicle? Yes, well, it's quoting campaigners insisting really that the ruling is technical in nature and does not change any of the issues for Airgrid and the partners ESB, with the campaigners emphasising that the critical issue 
uh, the critical issue of access to landowners' property could not be assessed because access routes were never submitted for approval to onboard Panala. So it's not the end of the line, Michael, as far as they are concerned. All right. Well, it's certainly uh, one uh, that we'll be talking about for some time to come. As I mentioned earlier on, we'll be speaking with Airgrid about uh, that decision yesterday and what they feel it means a little later in the programme. But they're the stories that make the Yes, I was just going to mention one other thing if I can, because you know I I am a bit of a political junkie and even though the local elections, they may be only, they may be, they're three months away I think at this stage, but there's a pre-election special in the Chronicle today which has info on everybody who's running and who's not, with 55 candidates so far declared for the 40 seats on Mead County Council that's up for grabs. So if, like me, you like your politics, that's definitely worth a read. Okay, well I imagine we'll be adding a few names to that list uh, before polling day. But thanks for that Marie, and uh, thanks for that matter to everybody who has been in touch with us uh, and uh, the comments uh, that we heard earlier on from Marie and you're welcome to make comments today as well on those stories in the local paper, something else you've been hearing or if there's an issue you'd like to raise with us, our telephone number is 1850 715 958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now why did the trial against Sean Fitzpatrick of Anglo-Irish Bank fail? Well we know to some degree that it was because of how one of the legal advisors to the ODCE, Kevin O'Connell, shredded files in a panic after he discovered he failed to disclose documents to Mr Fitzpatrick lawyers in a second trial which uh, collapsed. Uh, the judge found the ODCE coached and cross-contaminated evidence in preparation uh, 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 of witness statements uh, taken against uh, two of uh, the partners at Ernst & Young, the auditors of Anglo-Irish Bank. Uh, but there is more to the story. Factors uh, that led to, to the collapse extend well beyond the failures within the ODCE. This is according to the Director of Corporate Enforcement, Ian Drennan, who was in front of an Eructus committee yesterday. And he said that there was a considerable human cost to how this story was being played out in public. He said that the human cost is a poignant term and I hope none of the individuals concerned will mind me saying so. A lot of people were very badly damaged by the experience and he said that the narrative in the public domain about what happened was not complete. There are dots to be joined and there are bits missing. I think if and when the full story ever comes out, it will put quite a different complexion on it. Certain things were ventilated in court, certain things were not. In fairness to the individuals concerned, and one in particular, I don't think it would be appropriate for me to go beyond that, other than to say I observed this firsthand. Let's talk about this with James Lawless, who's a Fianna Fáil TD for Kildare North and a member of that committee, the Oireachtas Business Committee, uh, which heard from the ODCE yesterday. Good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us here on uh, the program uh, this morning. Uh, Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. What, what, What more did you discover from Mr. Drennan yesterday? Okay, so we had Mr. Drennan and the officials from the Office of Corporate Enforcement before the committee yesterday. Um, we had them in for, I think it was about two hours. Uh, we had a private session for two hours before that. Uh, the, I suppose they're in it for two reasons. Um, the first reason they're in it is an overhaul of the Companies Act ongoing at the moment, and all the Rockers Committee scrutinise legislation. We do what we call a pre-legislative scrutiny, where we look at legislation while it's been drafted to see if it's fit for purpose. So he was brought in uh, as an expert, I suppose, in the area, uh, someone who knows all about corporate enforcement, uh, and someone who might know from the Fitzpatrick trial what not to do as well. So obviously that was the other, I suppose, elephant in the room, the collapse of the DPP and Fitzpatrick trial. 
uh, which obviously led many questions as to whether they were resourced, whether they had the power to do their job, uh, and how they might uh, do it better. So we thrashed that out. Now, what's of significant interest to the committee and to the general public, I'm sure, Mr. Drennan filed a report uh, some 18 months ago after the Shrunk's pilot trial collapsed. There were a number of points made by the judge, Judge Aylmer, um, coaching our witnesses, how evidence was presented in court, how the case was put together, as you referred to shredding of documents, all kinds of irregularities, to say the least, uh, which caused the trial to collapse. Inclu- including um, the issues that we don't know about that he alluded to yesterday. Exactly, exactly. There's a lot that we don't know about that we'd like to know about. Because this so was published in part, a, a redacted yeah. version yeah. of it. It's a 450-page document, but the document that was published uh, was blackened out to a large degree. Yeah, that, that's right. There's been a couple of documents, actually. There was one he sent to the minister, I think it was to 3,000 pages. There was one he sent to the committee, uh, and then there's Mr. Connell's uh, correspondence as well, which is a, a separate report. So we on the committee uh, would be very keen at that correspondence coming to the public domain. Um, our view is it's been prepared by an officer of the state, namely Mr. Drennan, director of the OCDE. Uh, it's been put to an Oracle's committee, our committee in uh, business and enterprise, and we feel it's appropriate that that document be made public. Now, there was advice given to the committee uh, that the document was subject to privilege um, and that there may be items in the document which would not be appropriate to be put in public domain. We, I suppose, have a difference of opinion on that. Our view is that it should become a public document. There is a matter of significant public interest but I suppose what we call the secretariat, the civil servants who staffed the committee, were, were very cautious uh, and uh, adopted a conservative approach. This led to something of a logjam, which has persisted for about 18 months now, uh, as whether the document can be published or not. Um, but we're certainly pushing forward, uh, and we agree to re- revisit that in two weeks' time, um, to take additional legal advice if necessary, uh, and look at the document again. Because we need to get to the heart of what happened uh, in that trial, uh, why it collapsed, uh, and understand how those issues have been addressed. Mm. Now, Mr. Drennan went on, in public session, uh, he gave us uh, information on what the OCD has done. I suppose he didn't feel confidence to an extent in terms of the resourcing, um, additional manpower, people like forensic accountants, uh, different legal practitioners that have been brought into the mix. Um, he also pointed out of the five trials, the rising angle collapse, four of them did actually succeed in prosecutions uh, and convictions. So he said it wasn't all, you know, it, 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 the Fitzpatrick trial was the, was, was the big one, um, but the, the, four, the other four related trials did proceed. So I suppose he was keen to... I suppose, put that, put that on the record. Um, but obviously, huge deaths uh, arise, and there's, there are significant concerns. So we need to get to the bottom of them, and we will be pressing. We're meeting again in two weeks' time. We want to see the report. We want to see it published. We don't want anyone hiding behind advice or hiding behind privilege or hiding behind uh, the information laws. We actually want to get it out of the public domain and see what it says, uh, because this is, an, uh, as you said at the start, a huge human cost in terms of the economic loss and, and, and sacrifices and experiences that everybody in Ireland went through uh, as a result of these, these crises. Another point, actually, just looking further back that Mr. Drennan made, is that corporate law in Ireland basically wasn't enforced at all uh, up until 20 years ago. The Companies Act has been brought in, I think, around 2003. But prior to that, there was, in fact, there was no corporate enforcement, uh, which is a pretty stark uh, statement to make from an officer of the state. Uh, but he's probably right, you know, from, from mm. the 50s, 60s on. There was a time when the director of a company was sort of an honorary uh, function. They turn up with the Christmas drinks and maybe sign a paper once a summer, and that was sort of it. Um, you know, if you're maybe an honorary director or an executive director, that, 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 that time is long gone. Um, but it's only maybe in the last 20 years that the laws have caught up with that. And I suppose the enforcement um, and prosecution where, where those laws are broken, uh, because for a long time it was a, a very sort of softly, softly um, unregulated area. But when, he, when, when his office was charged with investigating this, it's clear 
uh, that they didn't have the resources to carry out the investigation necessary. He said that the office was not uh, equipped to deal with it, but he also said that the office would remain ill-equipped and that uh, whilst this was catastrophic and the wheels came off, uh, you could expect a similar outcome today, did he not? Um, well, I, 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 if you made that point clearly yesterday, I didn't catch it myself. You might, might have made that point previously. Um, but, because it's, but one thing that struck out to me, and I, I, I questioned him on it myself uh, in terms of what resources he'd hired, he was very keen to put across, the, the way I categorised it to him, uh, I, I played him back what he said and asked him to correct, was, was, was a correct in my analysis. Effectively, you had a laissez-faire, almost no uh, enforcement for the first 40, 50 years the company's off, and the 63 companies act up to maybe the early 2000s. Then you had a sort of an attempt to enforce it when OCD was established, I think it was following Senator McDougall and Mary Harney uh, and that government I know three brought it into being. But they were only getting started, they didn't have the resources. And then sort of post-Anglo collapse, and post-economic collapse, 2010 onwards, when they were, when Mr. Brannan would say they were given the teeth and given the resources to actually prosecute and uh, investigate these issues. So he was a pain to point out all the hires they had made, all the training they had been on, all the resources they had taken on board. Now I questioned about the detail of some of that, and I thought in some areas maybe they were still lacking. Um, but I think his, his position was they're much better resource now than they might have been uh, previously. Um, and that's the point he was, he was at pains to make to the committee as well. Mm. But were they asked to investigate this particular case with one hand tied behind their back? I, I think there may have been in terms of resources. Yeah, I think that, that's quite likely. Um, and I suppose that's why we went to get to that report, the document that had been suppressed. Because I have a suspicion that report tells us exactly what went wrong. And maybe points the finger at areas that maybe people inside government don't want the finger pointed at, finger pointed at. Um, and that might be the reason that there's such an effort to suppress that report. Mm. Uh, and your expectation, I gather, would be that the office uh, wasn't doing this in the dark. It, it knew it was in the dark, if you like, but it wasn't yeah. uh, in the dark, in the dark, uh, and was yeah. calling out for help, saying, we don't have the resources to do this. Exactly. That's my take on it. And it was mentioned in the report that we haven't seen but it was mentioned there are voluminous emails and letters to and fro to, to raise government bodies and government departments. And I would be uh, not at all surprised if those are requests for help, begging for help, asking mm. for resources, asking for equipment, asking for the powers and tools to do the job. And maybe those requests were denied, and maybe those requests were ignored. And maybe that's what people in government are very keen to dislike and not see the light of day. And I asked Regina Doherty, Minister Regina Doherty, about this uh, the other day, James Lawless, uh, and I asked her if uh, Leo Vradker uh, said that the government wouldn't put a, another cent into Anglo-Irish Bank if what he actually meant was that the government wouldn't put another cent into investigating what happened at Anglo-Irish Bank. Yeah, I think that's an excellent way to put it, Michael. I think I'll borrow that comment from you and use it again because I think, I think it's very apt. <laughs> okay, so you, you, you think the answer is yes because I don't think I got a minute, uh, an answer from the minister. The, the minister uh, was uh, none too pleased, uh, to be honest with you. Well, I, I suppose we've got to look at what people do, not what they say. So I think Mr. Bradker uh, said one thing and did another. I think that's quite apparent. All right. And what happens from here? You're meeting again in a couple of weeks, you say? We're meeting again, yeah. We're, we're keen to push ahead. So we've asked for the document to be given a final review. Now, we're prepared, if needs be, to ignore the legal advice. We're not beholden to it. Um, some members of the committee were very, I suppose, cautious and that's their entitlement to be. Uh, but others have said, look, it's in the public interest. It's been knocking around for close on two years. 
we are a doctor's committee. You know, this is a document supplied by a, 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 a state official. Mm. Um, we presume he has the wherewithal to know what he should not the same terms of the, the privilege, etc. Um, so we're meeting again in two weeks with additional advice, um, and then we'll see can we publish the document. Uh, I would certainly hope we can publish the document. Well, that advice undoubtedly uh, very, very important. Obviously, you're treading on dodgy legal ground, and I understand uh, that the two hours private meeting you had yesterday was not scheduled and delayed Mr. Drennan's uh, uh, appearance before you uh, by two hours so that you could discuss the legal consequences of possibly publishing this uh, document. Uh, I I gather it took some time to come to an agreement. That's right. There was two hours of pre-discussion and private session. uh, I suppose without violating the the privacy of that meeting, uh, there was a difference of opinion between members in the room. Um, Some of us were keen to press ahead and publish and be damned. Uh, others were saying, no, no, we must, we must hold it back, we must hold it back, we must redact, we must, uh, you know, black out certain parts of it, go through with the fine tooth gum and a big black marker. Um, which to my mind and to others' mind, it, it, it is the whole purpose of publishing documents. Um, if it's so redacted as to be unreadable, um, essentially it doesn't show the public that it's intended to, to be represented in the first place. We need to get to the detail of what happened, we need to find out what went wrong, we need to make sure it doesn't happen again, and we can only do that with the full facts. And suppression of the facts, even under legal advisory, even under maybe some kind of civil service uh, prerogative, I think is unhelpful to the public good in this instance. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed. Uh, perhaps uh, we can talk to you in a, a couple of weeks' time uh, when this advances, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. James Lawless, Fianna Fáil TD for Kildare North, is a member of the Oireachtas Business Enterprise and Innovation Committee. Michael Reed on LMFM. If, by the way, you had a Euro Millions ticket for the draw last night and you haven't checked your numbers yet, well, you need not worry uh, because the winner apparently has come forward, so undoubtedly it's not you. Our thanks uh, to Robert McGee from the National Lottery who has been back in touch with us uh, to say that they have heard from somebody who has the winning tickets, but they won't be revealing the identity of uh, that winner for the moment, maybe later on today. Our thanks to the National Lottery for that update. Now, let's uh, talk about exclusion zones outside of abortion service providers once again. Mabel Hallan, spokesperson for the Pro-Life Campaign, joins us now. Good morning to you, Mabel, and thanks for joining us. Uh, The Pro-Life Campaign is uh, opposed to this idea. Well, we are, and I think even the the language that's being used is quite revealing, these exclusion zones or safe zones. I think what these zones that are being proposed are actually censorship zones, because what they're seeking to do is to prohibit some people with some ideas sharing some opinions um, or or, offering some support, offering advice. Um, And these zones, they're not constitutional. If we look at the Constitution now, I'm not, uh, I'm not a lawyer, I'm an engineer, but I like to check my facts and figures. And I took out the Constitution to look at, well, what are our constitutional rights? And in the Constitution, in Article 40, in Section 6, says the right of citizens to express freely their convictions and opinions and the right of citizens to assemble peaceably and without arms. So these type of zones that are being talked about, I mean, they would trample on both of those rights very clearly. And I'm not sure how they could be constitutional. And I think that may be one of the reasons why it's taking so long for Simon Harris to put forward draft legislation. Well, possibly so, because I think everybody agrees there's a a balance of rights that needs to be reached. When you say you're an engineer, are you also a a doctor, a a medical doctor, or do you have any uh, medical qualification that uh, makes your opinion relevant to people who are seeking medical services? 
No, I have no medical qualifications. What I have, though, is uh, I've spent a lot of time looking at the laws that are proposed and learning about how the medical system in Ireland works. And one thing that's really concerned me, actually, from speaking to um, GPs, nurses, midwives, is the lack of information they have been given by the government on the way the current abortion laws are working or are supposed to work or where they stand with that. And so doctors, nurses and midwives are really concerned about the information they're getting. And even in speaking to some doctors, Michael, what I found was that many of them feel, well, you know, they don't necessarily know all of the options and all of the supports for women who might find themselves in a difficult pregnancy. And now Simon Harris is telling every woman in a difficult pregnancy, go to see your GP, first of all. Whereas, you know, these doctors, they're not all fully trained as pregnancy counsellors. And I think that's really concerning. And that's what's concerning me at the moment is that, you know, Simon Harris is totally ignoring the fact that there are issues with how pregnancy counselling is delivered in Ireland by state-funded groups like the IFCA mm. who were investigated for giving dangerous advice to women, coaching women to lie to illegally import abortion pills, coaching so, women to lie to their doctors if they had an abortion to say it was a miscarriage. Now, doctors have spoken out to say that is really dangerous medical advice to be giving women. And yet Simon Harris has been totally silent on it. Mm. We haven't heard what's happening with that investigation and we haven't heard anything from Simon Harris to ensure that every GP will have all the information on all the supports and all the... But the, if you have no medical... If you have no medical qualification, why is it you feel entitled to stand outside a medical service provider and advise women against the advice they've received from medical practitioners? Well, I, I think I'm not proposing to stand anywhere or to offer any medical advice to any woman, but what is being proposed is to exclude anyone, whether they're a doctor, a nurse, a midwife, or somebody who actually will offer help and support to a woman. And, you know, all many people do often is to say, well, look, if, you know, would you like help? You know, there is help for you and your baby if you would like it. Would you like it? No. Okay, no problem. You know, there is help because there are women who've spoken out and said, well, my daughter wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for a woman outside an abortion clinic Mm. when I was going in. Like there's one girl, Alina Dulgaru from... Um, She's living in London now, but she's not originally from the UK. And when she became pregnant, she thought she had no help. She had no support. She didn't know what to do. She was going to an abortion clinic. She was going to the Mary Stokes Clinic in Ealing in London. And on her way there, somebody offered her help. Mm. And from that offer of help, she accepted Well, there's an exclusion zone there now, isn't there? She didn't know about There's an exclusion zone there now, isn't there? There is an exclusion zone there now. So so did did somebody break the exclusion zone? I, I'm not proposing anyone breaks any, any No, but did, in that case that you're talking about. But in that case that I'm talking about, yeah. Lena has spoken out to say, my daughter wouldn't be here mm. if somebody didn't offer me support. Did they break the exclusion so zone to, to offer that? that. Someone, there are no exclusion zones in Ireland. And no, kneeling. Kneeling. But this was before the exclusion Okay, zone. I see, right. And, and, she, and, and that's why she's speaking out, is because she's seeing that there are groups in Ireland and she came to Ireland and she spoke to our Oireachtas members a few weeks ago to share her experience to say, look, I'm so thankful. I didn't know what supports were there. Somebody offered me help. And mm. it's really concerning, Michael, I think even for, you know, your listeners may have differing and views on abortion, but I hope we can all agree that we should be allowed to have free expression that's guaranteed in our constitution. And, and should we, we have... should be allowed to offer help. Should we have free expression outside of medical facilities in relation to other medical treatments? Well, I think that's a really good question because if you are to introduce some kind of exclusion zone or censorship zone, you'd have to be very clear on exactly what kind of things you are and aren't allowed to say. So 
are we going to say, well, you can protest outside a hospital on one issue, but not on another? What about the nurses' strikes? Would they suddenly become illegal as well? Yeah, well, what about medical procedures? Uh, is it just a abortion that you believe uh, people should be able to give advice, uh, that non-medics should be able to give advice uh, to people going into the doctors to be treated? Well, I don't think anyone's talking about giving medical advice. People, you know, it's a right. Can, can you, you know, make your pr- protest known? Can you make your opinions known? Can you offer support? Can you offer, let a woman know maybe about housing supports that may be available. Let a woman know there are mm. financial supports available. To let a woman know information that she may not be aware of. Mm. And I think, Michael, at the heart of all of this, in every situation where a woman becomes pregnant and it wasn't expected or she's got a difficult diagnosis, mm. it's a time when she needs our support. She needs information on you know, she needs information mm. on what supports exist, and I think my would you would you, would you would you object to people would you object to people standing uh, outside of hospitals advising people going in, uh, maybe somebody going in with a sore toe, not to have a blood transfusion? But Michael, again, I think you're you're speaking about medical advice, and that's not what's being discussed. Oh no 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 people advise people advise against blood transfusions and not on medical grounds. But I think that's a completely, you know, that, that's, what, that's not what's being proposed here. What's being proposed here is to exclude people who have a pro-life view mm. from... People advise against blood transfusions on religious grounds, don't they? Uh, some do. Yeah, so that's, not, so that's not for medical reasons. So would you agree with people standing outside of hospitals uh, advising people who go in with a sore toe not to have a blood transfusion? Or would you tell them to mind their own business? Well, Michael, as I said, I, I don't have medical qualifications. I'm not proposing to offer anyone medical no, advice. No, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not talking about medical advice. I'm saying that for religious reasons, you shouldn't have a blood transfusion. Michael, with, with respect, I'm here as a representative of the pro-life campaign. Yes. And as, as a member of the pro-life campaign, we are totally opposed to exclusion zones, but we will support anything that aims to save human lives that is done in a way that's respectful of others. Okay, would, you, we, su- would you support people... Uh, advising people going into IVF clinics or into GP surgeries looking for uh, for uh, a contraception of some sort or outside pharmacies going in or wherever pubs where they've uh, condoms and toilets but Michael I think what we're missing a little bit here is we're looking at you know what would I support but what we heard during the campaign and this is one aspect that really concerned me was so many women told their story on both sides of the debate and um, where they got a diagnosis of a life-limiting condition. Mm. And time after time, each person who shared their story, they said, you know, the doctor told me that my baby mightn't live and that many women in my situation went to England and I was left alone with no help and no advice. These are real situations that happened. And so many women were left without any information from their doctors other than some people go to but England. Maeve, I'm and talking I, about real situations Michael, now as well. There's Michael, many people no, who would object... There, the, the, Michael, the scandal there was that in those situations those women weren't told about the supports that were mm. available. They weren't told there was perinatal hospice care available. They weren't told of any information that would actually help them. And I think that's where the scandal is that oh. women are not being given information on all the supports, all the help. And Minister Harris has done nothing to ensure women mm. are given that information. And in fact, he's doing everything he can to try to stop anyone giving information to a woman about anything that isn't abortion. Yeah, but, I mean, there's lots of Catholics who don't realise it's a sin to use contraception. And if I go out for a few pints tonight, do you think it would be a good idea for somebody to be standing outside of the pub saying, please don't buy the condoms in the vending machine? I I think if somebody wanted to do something like that, then it would be within the law to do it. And what do you think I would say to them? 
you would be within your rights to, to say whatever you want. Well, say I'd say mind your own business. Uh, and, and you'd be perfectly entitled I'm, to do I'm so. going in here for a pint or I'm going into the hospital with a sore toe. Uh, please uh, make your argument elsewhere. This is a medical facility or it's a pub or it's something else. So, Michael, what you seem to be proposing, though, is that, you know, the law would decide who can say what, where and when. And that is censorship of free speech, freedom of expression, our constitutional right to assemble peaceably and without arms. There's no evidence that anything untoward is going on right now. You know, there's all this talk of exclusion zones. And, you know, abortion has been legal for almost two months now. And there has been, you know, no intimidation or harassment has been going on and anything that did happen of that nature there are laws in place to protect against it so mm. I, I don't think there is this But what about the people going into the GP surgery in Longford? Uh, I mean you know, people going in there with sore throats and uh, pain in their tummy and all that sort of stuff and having to look at, at that disgusting graffiti on the wall it was really outrageous wasn't it? Well I, I agree that any graffiti that somebody would put across any business is totally outrageous but what's interesting about that story is I saw in the Independent yesterday um, that it was apparently a GP that's pro-life so I'm not sure who put that graffiti on the wall but anyone who does vandalise anything you know it's breaking the law and they should be pursued for that no one is entitled to put graffiti on anyone's premises for whatever purposes. All right, Maeve, we have to leave it there for the moment, but thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Maeve O'Hanlon, spokesperson for the Pro Life Campaign. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, to uh, that Supreme Court decision to dismiss uh, the challenge to Umbor Planala's uh, decision to grant uh, planning permission uh, to Airgrid for the North South Interconnector. David Martin, spokesperson for Airgrid, joins us here in studio once again this morning. Good morning to you and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, what does this mean as far as Airgrid is concerned? Well, from our point of view, it's the end of legal challenges to this project in, in this jurisdiction. It's been through the High Court now and all the way through to the Supreme Court and uh, it came in our favour yesterday and we were, we were very happy about that. So really that's the end of the, the legal process. And you believe this gives the green light to proceed. So what do you say to people who continue to object to it? Not just object to it, but people who are afraid of it, who are uh, afraid uh, about what this will do uh, to the national environment, uh, to the beauty of the landscape, uh, to the value of property, uh, to tourism, to their health and their children's health? Well, I, I would say a, a couple of things. I think the most important thing is to have a dialogue with us um, and to speak to us. And if there are concerns, we are available. And we have our office in Cartmacross, Cross. Um, and we also have a mobile unit, which we're, we're on the ground. So please come and talk to us. And there are and these are, are, are concerns that uh, affect all our projects throughout the country. Mm. Um, are I, they valid I, concerns? Are people right to be worried about their health or the value of their property? No, they, they, they don't. Uh, health, is, I think, is obviously the most important thing. Property values are really you know they don't they they don't compare in terms of importance um i would point out there's hundreds of kilometers of these exact same structures traversing the country from east to west in fact there are are, are many already in me then they've been there for over 30 years and in common with the rest of similar uh, infrastructure throughout the world throughout the world electricity infrastructure there is no issue with regard health um, and I can stand over that. There really is now. There's obviously there's fears, and people, un- and I can understand that. And people want to talk to us about it. We're happy to do so. In terms of property value, we've done some studies, and the government did a study uh, last year as well. And what we're seeing is when um, new transmission infrastructure is being developed, there is a dip in property prices, and there's a. a, a I suppose there's a, a general sort of fear that this is going to happen and become self-fulfilling in many ways. And we have found, and the studies show that over the following years, that that 
dip is uh, goes away and then the normal prices are, are, are reasserted. So, look, there's mm. a lot of scare. There's a lot of issues that, that have been floating around and have been floating around for the past 10 years. Um, but really, in terms of moving forward with it, you know, the best thing to do is come and talk to us. OK, and what do you say to local people who say, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? Uh, but where does he think he's going to put these pylons? Uh, because he won't be putting them on my land. Well, we, we are very clear on where we are going to put them. And people who are will be on receipt of, of pylons know, uh, know exactly where they're going because we have um, published uh, in our planning documentation the exact sites for each one of these structures so and we've uh, engaged with many of the landowners in fact negotiated with many of the landowners regarding the specific location for these but for those who say not on my land well we have to talk, you know, we, have, we, we, we want to talk to people, we want to do it by agreement. Our, co- our colleagues at ESB Networks will be the people actually building these. So it's very important that we, we do talk. I, 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 you know, so negotiation and discussion is, is the most important way to do it. You know, there are, you know, a legal, you know, a, a, we do have, and I say we, I mean us and ESB Networks, we have a legal right to do this. You know, so we, we there is, a, you know, we have a right of access to the land, but we don't want to force our way on and we want to do it by, by conversation and negotiation. And also, I think it's very important, we do acknowledge mm. it's an imposition on uh, landowners. Like it is, it's a big structure, there's disruption in terms of construction as well, and they will be compensated uh, for that, uh, for, for, for that um, intrusion on their land. What message, if any, have you got for the campaign group uh, who were party to this uh, appeal? Well, I, 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 I think that, you know, we have reached the end of the road in terms of legal challenges. There's nowhere else to go. Europe isn't an option. So this is, is going to happen. I think it's most important that we uh, we stop with the adversarial approach and that we'll try and work together and trying to make this happen in the most efficient and and least intrusive way for those people directly affected by the project. All right, now take up on that European question in a a moment, but related to that are government party representatives, Fine Gael representatives, uh, and uh, indeed politicians in general, but particularly those uh, who represent the government who say that Airgrid needs to be convinced that these cables should be put underground. What do you say to them? Well, this is a long-standing uh, argument. And, and indeed, NEPP, the opposition group, produced its own study uh, many years ago by an organisation called ASCON, which purported to show that it can go underground. And, and, and I think even they would acknowledge that that solution that they put forward does not work. Um, there is one way of putting it underground, and I, I think I've mentioned this to you before, Michael, and that would be using what we call DC cables. And that's a different technology to what we use on the electricity system. And that would be involve us putting 140 kilometres of, of high-voltage DC cable underground. And that would provide, uh, that would represent a serious risk to the electricity transmission system on this on this island. This new project will be the backbone for the mm. Irish electricity system. So p- using a technology that we don't use, it's, it's too great a risk for us to do that. We couldn't stand over that. Notwithstanding the fact that it would cost hundreds of millions of euros more. But I- is it Airgrid's view that the government party TDs uh, who are talking against this proposal are talking against government policy? Well, we are we're an independent uh, organisation. We what we're called the transmission system operator, and we operate independently of so. So, um, our, we we report to the regulator, and our job is to maintain and develop the electricity system in the safest and the most economic way to do. So, really, we're stands we're, we're distance away from uh, politicians. 
they they have views, opinions, and and rightly uh, so, and and right to to express them. But we are not directly answerable to to politicians. We are we are we are an independent organisation. Okay, and a message then specifically for Helen McEntee, the minister who was speaking to us earlier on, saying uh, that the legal avenues have not been exhausted. That this can be taken elsewhere, and she seemed to be implying grounds for a, a case that could be taken to Europe. Well, um, she may be getting uh, different legal advice to the to, to that which I got. I was in the Supreme Court yesterday morning. And I asked that very question to uh, a couple of eminent senior counsel and they assure, have assured me that uh, all legal challenges, all avenues for legal challenges in the Republic of Ireland are now closed. That there is no scope for a European challenge? No, I, I specifically did ask that question. So I'm not a legal expert myself. I'm only passing on that what I've been told. And, may, and maybe Minister McEntee knows something more than I do, but I've, I've been assured that that's not an option for uh, opposition groups now. OK, and uh, the minister seems to believe that because there is no planning permission north of the border, that that could bring about an end to Airgrid's proposal. Well, the uh, she's absolutely correct that the planning permission was revoked. We talked about this on Monday. Um, it is now back with the department. It, 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 it was revoked because of there's no there's no government up there, and then we need a minister to sign it off. That they, there is now legislation in place that allows the senior civil servants to sign off on it. So it's back with the civil servants. So we're hopeful that we'll get that mo- uh, moving fairly quickly. Clearly, we're not going to start building a north-south interconnector where there's no, there's no planning permission north of the border. So we will be waiting for that to come through. Uh, just to conclude, um, you've answered, uh, I think, uh, the main body of questions in relation to this. But what about just the way people feel, that they just don't want it? They feel that Airgrid is acting against their will, imposing this on them, and that the government uh, is in line with that and and that the government party TDs, such as Helen McEntee, that I was speaking about, Regina Doherty, Damien English, Heather Humphreys, and so on, uh, are trying to put to the government the position of local people on their behalf. Uh, but, in fact, they're arguing with themselves. Uh, is there a moral argument in all of this that Airgrid can entertain? Well, there, you know, putting infrastructure like this on the land is difficult. And it's, you know, there, and I understand, and I've, I've been working on this a long time, that there is genuine opposition to it and there's a genuine worry and, and, and fear about it. But it, it has to be done. You know, it's not just happening in Meath, Cavan and, and Monaghan. We're working down in Munster. We're doing a big project over in Mayo. And we experience similar uh, responses. And we, we, we do eventually get there. And it's just really important that people talk to us and, and, and try and express what they try and express their, their concerns and that we can then address them. And are the politicians just playing politics with it, do you think? I couldn't possibly say that. Um, I'm sure that they are articulating the fears and concerns of many of their constituents and that's their job. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you indeed for coming in to us uh, this morning. David Martin, spokesperson for Airgrid, brings our programme to its conclusion today because our time has run out on us once again. Remember, there'll be a podcast of today's programme available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon. Before we go, thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Chris Murray in the Control Tower. I'm Michael Godwin. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie.